0: Hello, welcome to FiresideFileMaker.com, a podcast with John Mark Osborne and Michael Rashad. Hello, I'm Michael Rashad, and welcome to
1: Fireside FileMaker. And my name is John Mark Osborne, and today we're going to talk about UI versus UX. And actually, I didn't even know UX existed until I started talking to Darren, who's going to be our guest today, but let me introduce a little bit about how we found Darren. Uh, at Clarison Engage 2020, which just happened, which was virtual, uh, Darren Southern caught the eyes of the Fireside FileMaker Topic Selection Committee, which is Michael and me, when he presented a topic regarding slide controls and UX. It's available on YouTube at the Claris channel, so you can go see it if you want to see that. It's a really great presentation. That's what caught our eye. But we wanted to find out a little bit more about UI and UX and what it means. And so Darren, thankfully, uh, came to talk to us uh, about these uh, concepts and how he implements them. And Darren, don't you introduce yourself, tell us maybe a little bit about how long you've been working with FileMaker, how to start working with FileMaker, you know, anything that comes to your mind.
2: How are we doing, fellas? We're, um, we're talking about FileMaker, of course, because that's our, our product of trade. With, with the history in advertising, we always found that FileMaker was somewhere in the organisation. And even back to the, geez, the, the mid-90s, uh, I first dabbled with FileMaker 2.1, that we had a, an in-house solution for invoicing the artwork that the studio created. And essentially, it was a couple of repeating fields a sub summary report that went out to a, a an old laser pl- laser printer plus, and everyone was happy. You know, we weren't running the big system of the agency. We had our own little boutique little solution going, and life was good. You know, we we were able to report on who did what artwork, what clients were happening, and that was the first real introduction to Folmaker back in the. You know, the PageMaker days and that type of thing.
1: Yeah, I remember PageMaker on my Mac Plus. It was it was annoying yet so useful because it was so slow, but you could get so many cool things done. I designed a lot of things back in college using PageMaker. Oh,
2: absolutely. And, and, and to show my real age, we didn't have computers in school. You know, we weren't doing artwork on a computer. Uh, this whole desktop publishing really hadn't come out yet. And I made the transition from doing uh, scalpels, T-squares, uh, working with beeswax to stick, stick the artwork down, to, yeah, actually having to use a computer like Pagemaker to do layouts. And, you know, FileMaker just always seemed to be there. You know, that's just how it was.
1: Yeah, back in the day in high school, we, I think, had Commodore 64s in high school, and we're just getting Apple once I, I it's it's a long time ago for me too i think michael was though was was using uh you know uh, a, a stone tablet and etching things into it to write things down I, I don't know tell us what you were using back then michael
0: well john electricity had barely been invented when
2: i was around <laughs> yeah very funny <laughs> yes look i do remember using punch cards in high school too if that if that ages me and sets me in the in the time
0: timeline well we've all been around the block i think the thing is the answer <laughs> that's it
1: so so have you been working i mean when were you introduced to ux because everybody knows what ui is and and you know how long you've been working with it maybe you could define it a little bit what the differences are and just give us a base i know it's not an easy subject to just say ui is this and ux is this that's why we have a whole podcast on it but but, you know, give us kind of an introduction to it and how long you've been actually working with UI and UX. Yeah, as I
2: said, I've got a history in graphic design, and part of that process was not just print-based. It wasn't just magazines or publishing or unit trusts for banks or TV ads um, that had print material that came out in newspapers. There were times when we would produce a product, and it might be party wear. Um, I know at one point we were doing some Simpsons party wear for kids parties, you go into the local supermarket and pick up a 10 pack of cups, plates and those type of things. And the way that you interacted with it wasn't just how it looked, but how it worked. And I'm going to quote Steve Jobs and say design is not just the look and feel, but how it works. And that's the user experience in a nutshell of, of the the greater idea of design you know how your iphone sits in your hand how the applications appear and disappear that's the user experience that's the essential design on how it works and when we talk about our software file makers had this tradition as being the excel killer and so we can then go and take your, your spreadsheets and put them on steroids um, Part of that process of of building a solution, you start to, and you can say to yourself, am I building a database or are I building an app? What are the characteristics of an app that make it different to a database? And that could be as simply saying the app stores my preferences or the last search that I did so that when I open up the system, I'm back to where I am. I have all my filters set up and it and it provides me what I need rather than me having to go and get it all the time.
1: Now, would this be a good example of, of, for me, for user experiences, like when I design a system for my clients, I do things like you just talked about. But when I design sometimes a database for my own use, there's no bells and whistles. There's no restoring the find, found set when I open up. Is that kind of what you're talking about? The, you know, the difference? Yeah, it's like... A
2: lot of the time within UX, we talk about the persona or the different roles of the system. And if I'm the general manager of an organization and I sit down, do I want to see the dashboard of the whole organization or is my preference to say, I want to see these three departments every morning? Now, part of that user experience is I don't want to log into the system. to to have to set up all my filters and then say, this is exactly what I'm after every morning. Or the system says, okay, I'm going to publish out via email that report that you look at every morning so that when I open up my phone in the morning, there's my report. It's delivered to me. It's part of the user experience. Um, I've noticed with the books app on the phone that it's now saying to me, we're going to have 30... 45, 60 minutes worth of reading each day and you can listen to your audio books and it keeps track of the of the amount of audio that you've heard that day so that it's, it's helping you reach the goals that you want to reach for your type of user type. Um, and so, yeah, it becomes less static.
0: Yeah, that's a very interesting viewpoint um, and I hadn't really thought of it that way. I mean, a lot of the stuff in this area, I think, Darren, is... To some degree, second nature to us because we've all been doing it for so long, and we're always trying to put ourselves in the in the position of the user and develop from the user's standpoint rather than just from from ours. Um, but to to actually define it and clarify it in the way that you've done, I think is very helpful indeed.
2: Well, that's a big part of the user experience. That when you're putting together a new feature, you define. And you put it into context and you say, you know, we now need these new fields in the system. And the project owner or the project manager will come in and say, well, we need to add these new fields. This is the reason why. This is who gets to see it. And this is what we're trying to achieve. So that at the end of the day, we're not just saying, okay, here's two new fields on the layout. It's included in this Excel export and on these PDFs. We get an understanding of the context of that change to then make sure we're giving the best user experience out of that update to the system.
1: Darren, it it sounds like UX is about, if I simplify it, it's about making it easy for users to use your database system or app or whatever you're designing. So it sounds like sometimes UX can be expensive because you're trying to design things to make people's life easier is there sometimes when the ux can be too expensive that you tell the the user say hey or that your client that we shouldn't do this is going to be too expensive
2: i remembered or i remember a story of when i very first went to my very um initial filemaker user group and i introduced myself as a you know a graphic designer and the other developer i was talking about said oh we we don't worry about the interface because normally the client doesn't have any money left after we have you know done the actual functionality. So the interface is just what it is, and it kind of misses the point. Um, you're you're taking the the function that you're building, and you're not having to quadruple it or add so many extra functions you're just making a decision when you start the solution to say, I'm gonna have a user table that it's gonna store the data at startup. And most of the solutions we've been building over the years normally do have a control table where you store the company logo, you store the the company address, the tax details, um, logos um, to be able to load in at startup to then present throughout the system. And if you think of things in user context, then I have a user table. And if I'm going to your traditional list view, it may have some globals at the top for doing searching so you can hold your search. Well, I've got four fields in my user table that are my four fields that I normally do my search when I'm looking for, for customers or invoices. And it's startup. I'm going to run four lines of set fields to say set them over in the script into the using the startup script to set them into the into the globals and run the search so that as a user when I open up my screen I have my found set already. Um, It's not that great a difference between building the functionality so the user does those twelve steps manually to then say I'm running all these clicks all at once as a user and then when you put yourself in that user say well let me run those 12 steps for you so you're getting them all at once that's probably the the degree of difficulty of of thinking in ux rather than just ui
0: darren that's an interesting observation because um there's a couple of points you mentioned first of all the you know the developers who say that the client they by the time they get to using designing the interface the clients run out of money and I've never understood that because if you have a if you deliver a solution that looks like a dog threw up as we've often seen solutions the users aren't going to want to use it you have to appeal to get to appeal to them so they want to use it and otherwise they'll resist it or fight it or even in some cases sabotage it so for me the user interface has always been the primary you know I want the, I want the user to say, "Wow, I want to use this." Not, "Oh God!" Absolutely, because we're you know we're dealing with change. We're in we're introducing change to their environment, and unless we can make that change appealing, I mean nobody likes change. You know, even homeless people don't like change. They ask for it, but they really want a five dollar bill or a, you know a minimum of dollars. So nobody likes change, but you've got to get the user on your side. To, to be successful at, that, at least it's in my opinion
1: it sounds to me like darren that ux making a good ux can be very simple based on what you said i mean like you said it can be just making it from one uh, from four clicks to one click to do something that they do often
2: absolutely the whole point of the solution is to make the user's life better And if they've got to go in there and click five times to to get the information they need, they're going to have click fatigue. Um, If you present them with every single option possible for that one layout, then any sort of onboarding for new staff, they're going to have to know what the whole system does. And really it's about saying, what's the one purpose of this layout? If I can give one great purpose for this layout, then my, I've got success. My job's done here. And that person can sit in front of it, get that one job done, feel like it's happened, and yes, move on to the next task that needs to be done.
1: Bringing back and uh, emphasizing the sabotage point that, that Michael made, um, this actually happened to us at Claris 1.0. I call it Claris 1.0 versus Claris 2.0, where we were using FileMaker to track customer calls when I worked in technical support. And they brought in a very expensive PeopleSoft solution. And people sabotaged it. In other words, they didn't enter their call information in because they didn't now I'm realizing now they didn't like the UX of it. It didn't, it was, it didn't work the way they wanted to. It wasn't easy. They never really talked to us on what we want to do. So it's it's very interesting to me talking to you about this because you know it's so much better than I do. But I'm realizing that it's been in my life and, you know, this UX concept for a long time, and I just didn't realize it. Yeah, it's, it's
2: defining it. Um, it. It's saying that it's in front of mind. Now, I was going to mention that I've I, I've put different solutions together over the years. And a common theme is that you'll walk into an organization. And the first thing is the boss will say, yes, we're going to use this app. But we have to use all of these uh, triplicate books that I've printed out first, because I paid a lot of money for these and I don't want to waste them. But I then ask the question, where does the, the the carbon copy go? Oh, we throw that in the bin. Well, let's forget that. Let's define utopia as to how things work. And the boss will say, I have this report that I need done, and the staff take three hours to, to build this report because they've got to click, 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 import, export, do all this magic they do in their job, and then say, here's the report after three hours. And we we'll say, right, we can put that together in in, in ten minutes, and that could be automatic. And the staff will pull me aside and say, "I like doing that report. I like spending three hours, you know, putting that report together. It's it's a real easy part of my job. You know, I'm I'm really scared because the boss is going to fire me now because I'm not spending half my time on this report. And you have to reassure them to say, well, the boss is actually going to get you to do." better things, more enjoyable things. You know, you're still a valued member here. You still add to the production of this particular organisation. So we're going to try and make your life better, not just this clicking of buttons. Um, and you, you're going to switch yourself on in, in your work days.
0: You know, it's a very, that's this is again also very interesting because what we are doing, our job basically is to automate and eliminate repetitive, manual, boring, tedious tasks. And when you do that, you don't actually put people out of work. You you sometimes allow for people who are just basically sitting in seats but are not produce, doing anything productive for the company. You can get rid of those people. But anybody who's actually working for the company and can provide and does provide valuable work you're just basically freeing them up to do stuff that's productive and helpful to the to the company. But what I've found is that a lot of users, and that includes managers of, and owners of businesses, one of the big fundamental problems is they don't understand what can be done. They're operating from a, a very narrow viewpoint where they've always done it this way and nobody's ever said but there's a better way of doing it so that's as much of the learning process itself as getting to understand that there are better ways and we can provide that as a solution
2: which is all part of the ui and the ux absolutely and i, and I put that down to delivering what the customer needs not just what they want uh, if they knew what was possible then they could pretty much be doing it themselves and you're and this is sort of like a a differentiation to say well am I a developer am I someone who comes in and does what I'm told or am I a consultant who gets the full picture and then delivers the the utopia and and the solution that they actually need we we all have these stories I, I had a client come to me and said oh I want a questionnaire I go out on site and I want to fill out a questionnaire because I need to do compliance on uh, gas containers. I said, well, that's, that's, that's what you think you want. But what you need is to be able to have company information, location information, personal information. You need to have different types of questionnaires so that if you change your business slightly, you can then... Uh, update the, the templates and then create a new questionnaire. And he goes, well, this is what you do. I'm going to allow you to, you know, the the luxury to make that happen or the, the license. And once he was delivered the solution, he said, this is perfect. This is exactly what I needed. I was, you know, only thinking inside the square rather than the outside to say that, you know, this is what's possible. And he's been using that system for or almost 15 years on his laptop and we haven't had to touch it because he's been able to make his own adjustments and it's that thinking beyond what they're asking for and giving them what they need you know and that's a big part of the experience
1: so it it sounds like part of ux is is making sure you understand the business of your client And not just going in, I had an example, a situation at Macworld where somebody stood up in one of the sessions and said, I wish the guys had asked me more questions because they didn't even know that I was a high school, not a grade school, and it made a big difference in the solution they were designing. And I think that's kind of what you're saying, Darren, is that you got to really understand the business and become almost a subject matter expert in their business in order to design something that may be better than even what they were thinking that they wanted and and that really solves their problem.
2: That's where the real value is. And you can say business is based on selling a widget or your time or a combination of both, but you can have two carpet manufacturers side by side and the way that the business is run is completely different. And although you may uh, have personalities within the organisation that want things a certain way, you do need to step back and say, well, I'm not going to develop just for this personality because that personality may not be there in 12 months. I'm going to develop for the role so that when someone comes into that role, the system helps them understand how the business works, not the other way around. So that if you learn how to use the solution you built, then you know how the business operates. Well, this is also
0: where the big difference between a developer and a programmer because as a, a programmer you're like in a, a subcontractor on a building site you're an electrician or you're a plumber or whatever but the developer is looking at it from the from the whole point is designing the building and then becoming the the general contractor and the superintendent and hiring the subcontractors and when he can't find the right subcontractor he does it himself so it's a much broader scale, but we literally have to understand more about the client's business than they do.
2: To some degree. Um, we bring outside expertise as well that we have looked across different organisations and we know about best practices and we try to apply them where appropriate. Um, and we are we are a consultant. Um, we're a business consultant that our focus is delivering software that customers actually get a, you know a bang for their dollar out of and and, and is perfect for that it really is
1: so you've thought a lot about ux and thought so much about it that you actually put it in the name of your company cadence ux can you tell us a little bit about how you guys do business um, you know Anything that comes to mind about, you know, what makes Cadence UX different than another firm, not necessarily better or worse, or just just how you do things. I'm interested in in your company because you thought so much about it. You put the actual UX in the name of the company.
2: Yeah, we're, we're going through what they call unprecedented times. And as part of being in lockdown here in Melbourne for the last three months, it was, okay, let's put a side project together. Let's rebrand. Um, I was Cadence Solutions. Um, we're all aware there's another development company that's got a very similar name. So uh, I thought, right, I want to be very clear about what it, the business focus is um, and adding UX to the name, so that's what we focus on. And this is part of... Also getting the the, the idea out to our FileMaker community that UX is something that is a focus and it can take us all to the next level. Um, And that was one of the reasons of putting forward that presentation to to Clarice Engage um, and getting this sort of information out with with the other people who are focusing on design uh, with our industry. And part of that... um, Through the history of of developing, most projects start out by the client saying, we want you to come in, we want you to make the software, it's going to be a three-month project, you're going to spend this many hours on it, and then we'll call you back if we need need you later. Um, What I was finding and part of starting my business was to create long-term partnerships with my clients. Um, so that rather than saying Look, I'm going to go get the brief from you, go away, develop something, deliver it back, get your feedback. Now, whether that's in one week cycles, two week cycles, I've heard stories of developers going away and developing for three months and then developing then delivering it back to the client and going, the client going. This is not what I asked. This is not what we discussed or even in a situation, well, that was right three months ago, but it's not right today. You know, we pivoted regardless of, the, of the, the economic situations, and now we need something different. So part of my model is that I actually uh, drop myself into the organization one, maybe two, or even three days a week. Um, and I'm very much part of the, the culture at the place. And I get to know how things operate. I discuss things directly with the managers, the staff themselves, and I become part of the family. Um, and it becomes a partnership of success rather than just delivering a solution at the end of the day and then and not being having that connection later on. It does take the right client to create that relationship. But it's worth investigating. It's worth spending that extra time to understand the client's business, to understand where they're heading, and to have that regular contact. Now, we are all working from home at the moment, so we're doing a lot of Zoom meetings. So you don't have to be physically on site, but you're part of the stand-up meetings in the morning. You develop the briefs with the client. You develop the code. You're involved in the user testing at the end of the stage, and so you you are part of what they're doing, um, and that's one of the focuses of of Cadence UX. We we create partnerships with our clients to to have long term
1: goals. So, I think uh, how I would what I was thinking while you're talking about that a little bit was the clients or they're not clients yet, but they send me an email and saying, "Hey, how much would it cost you to make me this?" like, well, I can't really tell you unless I talk to you. And I I think there's, there's a special kind of client that knows that they want to have something special. I have one in Japan right now who really wants to make the best solution for his industry. And he's spending the time. And of course, you have to spend some money to do that, to get it right, to get the experience right. And we've been working on it for a year and a half now. And it's, 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 it's a, there's different types of projects. And I think what you're saying is you're going for the projects. You want to, you want to develop projects that have a lot of meaning, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, thought that go into it. And so there's really a a great experience for for the person. And and not every client wants that. Some just want you to, hey, I want something off the shelf to to manage my contacts or something. That's not what you're doing.
2: No, no, we're we're building partnerships. Um, The initial conversations are not about, how much is it going to cost to build this? Well, you don't go to an architect and say, how much is it going to cost to build a four-bedroom house? unless you're taking that cookie-cutter house off the shelf and then saying, that's what I'm after. And, of course, if you want to make any changes, then they start to take the price through the roof. So it's more of the client coming forward and saying, I have put aside this capital expenditure in my a P&L statement to say I need to spend this amount of money per year on an ongoing basis so that my business gets the most out of this software. And there are times that 75, 80% of the work is ensuring that I understand what the client needs before actually going into the file maker layout and providing the solution. And if you're programming for an hour at a time, that even doesn't give you the the flexibility to say, well, I need to try two different methods here. I need to try the traditional way and then I need to go and try something completely different and find out which of those two is gonna be the best solution for the client. Otherwise, I'm doing the same development methods I was doing 10 years ago. I'm just rebranding it for different clients and I don't think anyone wins at that level. So it's putting the emphasis back on the client to say, This is uh, what my business needs to inject into the project. It's not just capital funds either. Uh, The client needs to understand they have buy-in on this solution. Their opinion matters. We need to have both the managers and the staff on board. Otherwise, as we say, they're going to sabotage it. And at the end, we come up with a successful solution. And FileMaker is perfect for that. Not only does it allow us to work in an agile method, I'm a big believer in prototyping and building solutions that visually show them how it's going to operate and how the user experience is going to happen. I'm not a big believer in in spending three weeks putting a specification document together that can be interpreted completely different by the individual who's reading the document. Um, It's about putting software in front of them as quickly as possible as well. Um, I wouldn't do it any more than a couple of hours development in a test environment to then jump into a Zoom meeting with a client and say, give me five minutes. I wanna show you where I'm heading with this. We're on the right track. Yep, right, I'll continue on. Or even come in and say, look, I've spent three hours on this. It's not heading in the right direction. We need to refocus what we think this particular function is gonna do. And then I'll continue on but it's that agile backwards and forwards and not just creating this solution and delivering it and everyone going, well, that's not what I expected. And you get that from experience. You know, In the early days, we had that happen where a solution was put in front of a, a client. The actual people on the phones were never shown because the manager itself uh, was the one that designed it. And it was designed in the context of putting a day's worth of orders together at one time where the phone calls were coming in and they were adjusting two weeks at a time. So the context was completely wrong. So it is about that partnership to come up with a solution.
1: Just so it's clear for everybody, uh, let us know the location of Cadence and do you do uh, business outside of your country?
2: Absolutely. Um, I'm based in, uh, Melbourne, Australia, here in the great land down under. Um, we are in a completely different time zone here, but that's up to us to, to work through in Australia. Um, and the, the, because the projects are of a largest size, then it's not really about saying, well, I need a developer to do three hours work for me. Um, in those cases, there will be local developers that can provide that sort of um, development service um where f- for, for what we do at the business it is at a larger size um and i'm flexible in in the, the operating hours that i can op- to work with and uh with the power of the internet we can be anywhere in the world uh, we're all working from home at the moment and you could be working from home or you could be working from the bahamas or even in spain if you're lucky enough
0: well, yeah. I mean, just for our listeners, this is kind of an unusual um, podcast because it's we started this at 2 p.m. California time, which is 11 p.m. my time in Spain and 7 a.m. for Darren and 7 a.m. Saturday for Darren in Melbourne. So we're on three completely time zones. And um, it sometimes provides a challenge, but there are often times where the time zone works for you. For example, if I have a client who wants in the US who wants something done, they send it over to me last thing at night when they go to bed, and by the time they get in the morning, I've done it because my day started when their day finishes. So it can work for us, but there are times when it's um, it's hard. But we just you know we're used to it. We just accept it and work through it.
1: Yeah, my client in Japan, uh, we can meet at 2 p.m., which I think is about 5 a.m. in the morning. He wakes up early anyhow, and we get a couple hours before he goes to work whenever we want to. It works out, works out pretty well. We can still meet. Um, but what I want to find out from you is, I think everybody's got a fairly good idea what UX is. How do you test or prove that the user experience is good once you're done or is it ever done or, or I'm just curious about how you gauge your success on UX.
2: It is one of those uh, areas that can be a little bit gray as to, you know, am I finished Has the process complete completed, you know, um, I'll quote Ray Colligan, who says that a good database is never finished. It's abandoned. Um, And it's the idea that a business never finishes uh, pivoting or changing the way they work and that their solutions they're sitting in front of uh, need to change as well and we may put a function in we then let the user work with it Um, they've had their time on the test environment to say yes in theory let's move this into the live version and um, it's doing what i need but then when they're actually using the system they find, well, this could be a little bit nicer. This could change to here, or this could change to that. Um, So it is this process that's always continuing. Um, But to to test it, you use it yourself as a developer to say that, you know, this provides the function that I've discussed with the client. And and, and that might seem obvious, but I do know developers out there across other platforms that don't test around code. They just say, that's up to the user to do that. I'll write it. I won't even test it. Unfortunately, the user gets it, presses the button, and it doesn't exit out the loop, as an example, and they're then requesting updates, and they can't use that allocated time for testing because they've got to wait for the developer to come back to them. So as a developer, you do need to run it through yourself on how things work. You also have the added benefit that you know what can go wrong. Where the end user normally doesn't know that, so you can look at your scripts and know what can go wrong and get things right, and spend time with your users and watch them using the system. Don't preempt. Don't have a um, an assumption of how they're going to use it. Just sit back and watch. And I've been amazed sometimes that the users will actually try and do a process completely different to what I first envisioned. And you go, why are you doing it that way? Oh, that's just what makes sense to me. Well, okay. Well, let's let's redirect it a little bit and do it this way. Oh, that's that's much better. Or no, I like my method. But it's that backwards and forwards, and allowing the user to explore in a test environment so that they can't damage any live data, and they can feel like they can do anything without being restricted. I oh, know if I press this button, it's going to create a you know, an email out to so-and-so where in the test system, all the emails are set up to go to the developer. Um, so it's about watching, it's about communicating, and then saying, you know, th- this is where we're headed. Um, and I think another big part of it is spending a lot of time researching yourself, um, looking at different information out on the internet. And, and as developers, we're always trying to extend our knowledge um, most of my reading is on UI and UX and business processes. Um, I do spend time having to read about the, you know, the the latest data data API settings or integrating with an external um, data source. But most of it is about what UX can do for for a solution. And looking at UX outside of things completely different from software, because it is all around us.
1: So my next question would be, is there any overlap between UI and UX? I I think there's got to be some. I'm just curious about how much it is.
2: UI is a component of UX. So if you've got, um, we can use terms like angry fruit salad or the the person gets a cognitive overload because there are too many bright colors on the screen because they're sitting in front of a screen with bright orange all day, then that can then say, well, that UI is getting in the way of the user experience. Um, If simple things like the buttons are too small, um, I've got an auditing system that's used by field workers who most are spending their day cutting trees away from power lines. And these guys and girls have big thumbs. You know, so and they're they're out in the field. They're not in an office with a little keyboard. And so the buttons have to be a decent size. Um, And so therefore, the UI of the buttons needs to be big enough to give them the right experience. Um, I was putting together a solution for a volunteer library. And we put the layout together, went out on site, and they've said, oh, you need to make the font bigger. Well, we went from 12 point to 14 point. No, you need to make it bigger. And then say, so, okay, before we just keep jumping around, what's your definition of bigger? And the response was, the average user is a pensioner; they're retired; they're a volunteer; their eyesight is fading. We needed to be this big, and I'm holding my thumb and finger up. But, you know, we're talking about seventy-two point on the screen, and so again the size of the font for the actual user needed to be a certain size so the UI was part of the UX.
1: Excellent example.
0: Well, actually, this brings me to one of my pet peeves with, with FileMaker is that, and I love FileMaker, but the inspector drives me insane. I have to have a magnifying glass by, in front of me so I can actually read the numbers on the inspector because I can't see them with my native eye anymore, even with glasses. And it's like, why don't they get this?
1: I'm starting to catch up to you, Michael, because I used to be able to sit back and lean back in my chair and and look at the inspector and and easily see what's going on. Now I'm going, in the last year or so, I'm like, I I can't see anything. I have to get right up to the screen. So I guess I better go out and get my magnifying glass now. Yeah, get a big one. (laughs) right
2: <laughs> yeah and, and and this is my first year of wearing prescription glasses all day as well i've, I've resisted it i've squinted i've I, you know kicked and screamed but no i've got my prescription glasses on now that i need to wear when i read things um personally i thought that the screen quality of the iphones just wasn't getting any better you know, I was starting to say that, you know, Apple started using cheap components and then I went to... <laughs> and, and I've gone and got my glasses and gone, this is amazing. You know, they, uh, I've heard all about these retina displays and they're beautiful. So, yes, it's it's you've got to be able to see and look at what the screen is doing and that's, you know, the UI is not just the font, the colour or the shape. It's 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 part of the UX.
1: So. Let's talk a little bit about themes. Uh, you know there's some that are built into Filemaker. Uh, obviously, a lot of developers create their own themes, um, you know to give themselves you know a marketing edge. Uh, I'm just curious how many themes have you created? Do you use one different one for every project? I mean, how crazy do you get with designing different looking themes for people?
2: Each project has its own theme. Um thinking about this i don't think i've got different themes across different devices for the same client so you may find that the desktop solution has one theme, but the ipad auditing system out in the field has got a completely different theme. but look the whole concept of themes is great um i remember rick coleman coming out to see us in the filemaker nine days and the first thing he said, you know, what do you guys want out out of future versions of FileMaker? And my hands shot straight up and said, Look, I've been spending my my years in PageMaker, Quark Express, Illustrator. We have themes, we have styles, and we can tag the text or the elements through a page layout program, and then have the client come back and said, You know where you've used bold. I want that italic instead of bold now and so you change your style and it flows through the whole magazine and lights good where at the moment we've kind of getting there with the themes where we can say this element is going to have most of what we apply to it in this in the, the inspector but not all of it um, and we're not able to do a base style to say that this is the font the color the line spacing that we have for the font but in some cases i want to make this that one bold but i still want to have it the same font and then later on say well i need to make all the fonts larger and you update the base font size and it flows through to the others we're not there yet Um, but the whole point of having a theme is to say that my button looks like this my field label on a form view looks like this. My field label on a list view looks like this. And so that you can start tagging things for a consistent look and feel. Um, it's, It's trying to teach the user too much to say, on this layout, a button looks like this, or on that layout, a button looks like that. We're getting to the stage where everything is clickable on the screen. And so it's less of a necessity to be able to format something to say, this is a button I interact with. But it still helps a user to say, a particular style of button actually works with the data. If you click this button, it's gonna change some data. If you click this button, you're gonna navigate somewhere. And if you click on this style of button, we're gonna expose more information for you. So you start to build design patterns into your themes, to say that if the user knows what this means, it flows through the whole system. It's a balance, but themes are really helping us from there And to answer the question, yes, separate themes for separate clients.
1: Now, how different are the themes? I mean, do you sometimes start off a client on one theme and then make changes depending on what they need? Like you said, the example with the elderly folks they need a larger font. Could it be as small of a difference as, as that between one client to the next? Or, is, or are you literally just thinking the whole color scheme and, and everything through on every single job?
2: Oh, the color scheme through every job. You need to ensure that the software that you're developing and the solution you're providing fits in with the branding for that particular company. Um, We've all developed solutions where the client wants their logo in the top left-hand corner so that they know that they're at their own company and as a developer going, hang on, don't you know that you're sitting in front of your own company's system? But it's about that branding. Um, You know, I can quote some of Michael's books that talk about going out to the client's websites and finding the colour themes that they're already using, ensuring that they're going to continue with that and picking up a consistent colour and font selection that then makes them feel like that they're at their own organisation. Um, the positioning and the functionality can be consistent. You can build a design uh, pattern up to say that this is how a particular button works or this is how a layout works, but how it looks can be a direct connection to the customer's branding as long as we're not generating something that's, that's it's too hard to look at all day.
0: And that's a really key thing. You know, people don't think, users don't think about um, that they've got to be able to look at it hour after hour which is one of the major problems with excel is that when you work in excel you go cross-eyed or blind within about three years because you're just looking at a, a grid of numbers and columns and it's like oh my god what am i looking at and it's just hard on the eyes the same with multiple colored the you know the ugly rainbow effect you've got to have you've got to have it's got to be subtle and and easy to for the eye to adapt to it and and just live with it for many many hours at a time because we don't work on a system for an hour a day we're working on it for 8 hours a day
2: yeah absolutely and and I have to admit there are there are a lot of neutral colors as the main color in the layouts so that it's soft on the eye and then you pick some of the key colors that they're using in their branding to then allow an element to to stand out on the page and this is we talk about things like the squint test.
1: So, so what ex- can you define a squint test? I mean, you kind of did, but yeah, yeah. It's it's look at any any
2: element in in nature or a computer screen or magazine. It, this comes from the graphic design days to say we put an ad together and we squint. Now, as we've just discussed, we take some of us just take our glasses off rather than having to physically squint. And to look at the item and to see what stands out, what jumps forward. Is it the image? Is it the headline? Uh, Is it a big red button in the bottom right-hand corner? It's what comes forward to you, and does that marry up with what you want the user to be looking at and to, to not demand attention, but to be able to come forward and say, well, yes, that's the main part of what I want the user to look at in this screen. And it's as simple as doing a squint test. And, and honestly, there are times that things pop forward that shouldn't, um, and you you knock it back in either colour or saturation or, or providence on the layout so that what you want to come forward actually comes forward. Um, there's no guarantee that you have a big red refresh button in the right-hand corner, and the user's actually going to click on it, but you do your best to make sure that it's, you know, it's, it's going to stand out to the user without shouting it, it's a very good
0: observation and i have used the squint test myself but i've never really thought about it as being just a way to see w- which objects are most prominent or least least less so i just haven't thought about it. i suppose instinctively
2: i know it but it just hadn't considered it in that way yeah it's it's about it's trying it's trying to create the element on the screen that should stand out um, and and that's front of mind. Um, you know, again, a layout can have one purpose. What is that one purpose of the layout? And part of it is to say, what button should be coming forward to me at the moment? So it's 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 being considered.
1: So I, I still remember this about probably 20 years later. I was doing, uh, reviewing stuff for the Everything CD. Uh, it's not around anymore, but it had a lot of FileMaker stuff on it. And there was this one solution that looked like an Excel spreadsheet with a bunch of columns, and each column had a different color. It was I, I called it the magical rainbow cu- uh, unicorn interface, and and literally had thirty different colors going across. Not to mention the whole interface was was a was a list view. But I I, I tell my students usually that a handful of colors on a single layout is probably all you need because otherwise you're, you're not, your eyes doesn't know where to focus. The, the color is supposed to attract lots of things attract your attention, but color is one of the big ones. And if you overuse it, then, then you're, you're basically making an interface that doesn't, you know, doesn't pass a squint test essentially. And so if you had some type of number of colors per layout that you'd recommend, for a user, could you throw out a general number? I know it's not the exactly an exact science, but give give our audience a, a, a way to try to say, hey, maybe I'm overdoing the colors a little bit too much.
2: Yeah, to, to quote Jobs again, I work on the rule of three. And that if I can get away with using three colors on the layout, then that's, the, that's sort of like the sweet spot to say that I've got a neutral background and then I've got two other colors which may or may not be from the customer's branding, to then bring something forward on the screen to say that you either interact with the element or it's demanding attention. And to ensure that you've got the right mix of colors, you can actually go out to nature. There's, there's techniques where you can go and take a photo, bring it back to the office, get an eyedropper in your paint or image software, click on three colors, And there's almost a guarantee that those three colors are going to be complementary. That was one technique. Another technique is to switch your color picker from RGB to HSB. So hue, saturation and brightness. And then when you're changing colors to to pick a secondary color, only move one of those sliders. Nine times out of 10, you can move just a hue slider. And that second color that you picked from the original one will then be complementary. They'll still stand out, but they won't compete with each other on the layout. For me, less is more as well. When you're putting a layout together and you, you believe you're finished, then you start to say, well, what can I take away from this that is not adding to the user experience until I end up with the bare bones. And sometimes that's a color. You you might say, why is this thing green and that thing's blue? It's not communicating anything. I think it's pretty because they're green and blue together, but it's not delivering anything. I'm going to take it away, and thankfully with themes, you can go and say, right, I'm going to change the the style of this particular element and it will flow through your solution and say, well, if I remove this color or if I knock that color back, am I going to lose that element coming forward when it needs to, or is it going to be more complementary? And I've got stories too where clients have said, I want each of the different tables to be a different colour, and we ended up with eight eight separate colours. I said, look, I fully agree with that. Give me the eight colours, but now I've got them on a piece of paper. If I say to you green and you don't know that that's invoicing, we're not going to do it. But if it's common knowledge in your organisation that a green piece of paper floating through the office is an invoice and a blue piece of paper is a delivery docket, then absolutely we'll colour the system to match so that there's a connection to the real world that's part of your culture and your organisation. But if we're doing eight different colours just to make angry fruit salad, we're not going to do it. It's not justified. It's not considered.
0: Darren, thank you very much. And this is a fundamental theme and something that John and I say all the time. As a developer, we have to know how to say no to the client because sometimes their ideas are just awful. And you've got to be able to stand your ground and say, look, I'm sorry, but that's a really, really bad idea. And you're going to hate me if
2: I allow you to do it. Yeah, we're not doing our job as consultants. If, um, as they say, the, the inmates are running the asylum. Which is a great book to read.
1: Now there are other things, graphic elements, and and add on to this, or, or disagree with me, I but but you can use stylized text like bold, italics. You can use uh you know icons, white space, lines. I mean, there's lots of things besides just putting us you know coloring a button red. You, there's there's lots of things in your interface. Tool belt essentially that you can use to draw attention and not put a ton of color on there.
2: Absolutely, but but don't, only do one thing to it. You know, don't bold it, don't italicize it, don't make it red, and don't underline it because then it's shouting. There's no need for it.
1: Right. <laughs> no all caps.
2: No. Yeah. No. No. No tweeting in caps, please. No.
1: Just
0: as an aside, uh, Darren, I actually believe that FileMaker design came up with themes not to give you what you told them you needed but to allow even the worst developers to develop solutions that actually looked halfway decent because some of the ugly solutions that we've all seen in in years past did nothing but hurt FileMaker and themes prevented
2: that to a large degree. Oh absolutely and that goes for a lot of the functions within FileMaker as they've added features it's not lowered the bar, but made it a lot better for entry-level developers to create great looking solutions. If you're not sure how something works, follow what you're given. And what FileMaker and Claris give us is a great starting point. Absolutely. And they're getting better and better You know, with every time they bring out a new version.
1: I first uh, learned about uh, what I'm going to ask you next, which is about the grid system from Heather Winkle, who was... The main driving force, at least behind the way the themes looked, she's no longer working at Claris, but that's a long story. But tell us a little bit about the grid system because I try to follow it and I'm not anywhere of an expert, but it made sense to me when when Heather went over it in a, in a webinar and, and I looked at some websites and things like that and tried to follow it. And I think I do a decent job, but I, I'd like to hear from somebody I consider more of an expert at user interface and user experience design.
2: Yeah, this is a, this is a big UI, UI component. And, yeah, Heather was a great component um, of the design kickoff that we had within the Claris environment. Um, And there are others within uh, the Claris company that have sort of taken that and moved on with it. Um, And being able to do a grid goes back a lot of years before the computers. And we talk about having gutters and margins and headers and footers Um, If you look at a book, you open it up, there's a clear space across the top, the bottom, on the outside left edge, the right side, outside edge, and on the spine of the book. If you bring that analogy across to a, a, a computer screen, you don't have to take all your elements right to the very edge of the page. You need to have some negative space or what I say, positive use of negative space to give the elements some air. And one of those things is to have gutters and margins between the different elements. That's like level one of it. If you Google eight point grid, there are pretty much web focused uh, information, but we can take it across to desktop and, and device driven layouts of creating a grid based on pixels because that's how screens are uh, are measured on the pixels, so that any element can float within that eight-point pixel. So no two elements are eight pixels less than that apart from each other. They follow a grid. So if you have a a number of fields down the layout, they're all sitting on the same left-hand margin. If you have two columns, then they're also sitting on the on the the right-hand margin. Layouts can be based, and let's let's talk about something that's not new, but we're starting to work more with, the master view, where we have the portal down the left-hand side of options of records, and then on the right-hand side, we have the actual information that we're working with. Now, that can be set up as a three-column grid. The left-hand column is the portal, remembering that we have the margin on the left-hand side and the margin on the right-hand side, so they're not having to go right to the very edge of the screen. And then the the middle, or the second and the third columns can be one big spread of text or data or information about the record that you've selected. So it doesn't have to be three complete sets of columns. Like when you open up a book, you may find that there are two columns on each page or one column on each page. So it's based on a grid and items can move across the grids. Um, It is one of the more complicated things to try to explain by speaking about it rather than actually sort of looking at a screen and saying, well, yes, this has been gridded up and things align so that they are um, acceptable to the eye and things don't jot out because they're outside of the grid.
1: Is it uh, safe to say it's about grouping-like items together and giving white space between them so you can tell where a grouping of items are?
2: Uh, That's a a good definition using negative space, that the elements have their own, and I'm going to quote Albert here to say that it has a face. When you bring elements of text together, then that becomes a face. It becomes how you you look at things. If you were to look at someone, someone's face is made up of their eyes, their nose, their forehead, their hair, and their chin. And you can look at that face and immediately know what you're looking at, where the grouping of text elements with different weight and fonts as an element can be turned into a face as well. So the way elements are grouped together then can be read as one element by the user.
1: Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense.
2: So I've got an interesting
0: observation, Darren, and I don't know whether you've ever thought about this, but we're now in a world where we all wear masks a lot of the time. And I've noticed that even though people are wearing masks, I recognize them instantly despite the part of their face being covered.
2: Absolutely. And and someone can be speaking to you with their mask on and you understand the context of what they're saying through their eyes.
0: Yeah, it's a good point. I thought about that too.
2: Um, one of the tricks we used to do with fontography is that you can put a sentence down on the page, hide the bottom half of the text, and you can still read the writing. You can still read based on the top half of the font.
1: Yeah, these are all great examples and analogies and things like that and, and thought-provoking. I think the audience is going to love this because, you know, if you've been designing interfaces, UI, and if you've never thought about UX, you might've been doing a little bit about it, but now you'll think more about it. I mean, this is just thought provoking to hear from an expert uh, who knows so much about the design process. Can you tell us a little bit about your complete design process? You know, I know obviously it's more, much more complicated than you can cover in a podcast, but give us a good overview of how you approach a project when you've got a client how do you how do you go from from the beginning to the end? My mindset and my context
2: is about delivering an app rather than a database. So that's the first. Everything that I put on put together is based on on building an app. Um, I've moved on from saying that I've you know building a, a, st- a spreadsheet on steroids. I'm building an app for someone. I'm very much about prototyping rather than documentation. And. There are some clients I've gone out to see. We're not really sure we're on the same page yet. Rather than spending a day putting a document together and then saying, here's my understanding of what you're after on a, in words, spend the day developing. Put a prototype together. It's very powerful to go back to the client and say, based on what we discussed, here is one part, one component that we've discussed, and you press this button, and here's the result. Then you'll know whether you hit the mark or not, and that prototype can be-
1: can become the final product. I think a lot of people are stuck in the requirements document age, and and this is somewhat of a different way of approaching it. What would you say to people? Say, well, you have to have everything written down in order to to get a you know a price for the project, and and you know, what, 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 how can we just do a prototype and, and convince the, I, I'm not in disagreement with you. I'm just curious what you, what, you know, cause a lot of people have got to say, Hey, where's our document?
2: Uh, do both. Spend the time to do both. If, if you've got a brand new client and you haven't got a, a level of understanding of communication yet, and this is what the client expects, do what they asked, but also do what, you know, what you believe to be right as the consultant and then present both and then let them decide. And if it's not clear to them that you've taken the right track, you're not the right consultant for them. Um, And this goes to development too. Don't just do the the same old development you've been doing for years. Spend some time, break out of the box and try and do something different. Go and do some research to find out some sample files of what some other people have done. Um, You know, I've put my sample file up of the the slide controls, that's completely unlocked and see it as an example. You may or may not like it, that's your preference, but at least build up this uh, kit of other techniques that you can try and apply on your next project and do both. You know, if you're not sure, go and write that document, put a prototype together, you know, and present the, the, the document to the client. You can stick a staple in it and print it out and be real old school. because I can tell you, most people don't read off the screen anyway. They look, but that's a completely other discussion. So give it to them and then say, by the way, here's a presentation of what my interpretation of that document is. And this is my preferred way of working with prototypes rather than documentation. And it took me this long to document and this long to prototype. And Mr. Client or Ms. Client, if you're really sure that you need documentation, how about you be the one to put your hand up to build that, you do the documentation and I'll do the prototyping, and you come in together as a partnership. Um, So that's one of those methods. I try to be agile rather than doing agile. There's an agile approach to development that you can kind of get stuck in you know, you're following the rules of being loose in how you develop, but you're still following the rules. So it's about saying, you know, I've got this next task to do. I still need to follow certain development processes and best practices, but I'm going to try and do things a little different every time to to refine my craft in in, in building apps. And I I use the word crafting apps because it, it is a design process. I try to focus on the why, the what, and the when, rather than a straight technical outcome. Why is someone looking at this screen? You know, what is it that they want to do in this screen? And when in the process are they going to want to do this? Rather than turning around and just saying, "Well, I need a you know a sub summary report," um, and, and focus on those ideas. Another part of the process is to do field research. Yes. Get management to give you instructions that they need a dashboard, but go out and talk to the different types of persona that are out there using the dashboard and find out what they need. Um, had that happened with a client? Yeah, we want a dashboard. Not really sure what it is, but we need a dashboard. Go, you know, you know, it's almost Monty Python like, you know, we need one of these and I don't know what they are, but, you know, it sits in the corner and goes ping. Right. (laughs) So you you then talk to the field and they say, well, yes, I want to see a pie chart of my outstanding actions, but then what? Well, as well as a pie chart, you have an actual number on the dashboard to say that there are 22 outstanding actions for this particular area, and then when you click on the 22, you're presented with the list. So it becomes a navigation method from the report. So find out what they wanna do with the data, not just you're putting the data together. It still doesn't remove the fact that you need to build a system that's gonna provide reports, understand the process that they need to get to those reports and what data is required to be captured to give you those reports. We spoke about that before, about having a, a testing process that developers follow, and then the users test it, and then we go live. And of course, you want to have a consistent interface with consistent design patterns. So that's that's part of the design process, of putting solutions together. And and it's, and it's always evolving as well uh, with what I'm building, because there's, there's going to be feedback from people you're working with, and you want to increase that user experience of working with you as a developer. And, and, And one of the key things I've been doing is writing my code so that the next developer can see what I've been doing. I'm not there to impress anyone with abstraction. Um, If I can write something that's clear to the next person, I'll put it in that context. I've actually got a, a, a bit of a demo that I've done that I've written one lot of code that's fully extracted that has uh, set field by name. It collects all the fields off the layout. It loops through them and sets the target field in the other table based on the abstraction. So there's about 12 lines of code there. The other option is just using set field where we're hitting the fields themselves. Now it's probably twice the number of lines of code But even myself as being the next developer to come and look at that code and make any edits to it, the standard coding method is so much easier to read, update, and troubleshoot. So, yes, we can do code, you know, set fields by name, do sort of all sorts of abstraction. We can use functions like execute SQL, We can use functions like JSON to build data arrays with the data API native within FileMaker. But just be considerate of the next person who's about to use that code. Um, I know that... I was going to say, it's not only that. I mean, it's just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yeah. Just because you can put, you know, 20 different fonts or 30 different colors on a layout doesn't mean you should. Less is more.
1: Yeah, I think one of the buzzwords in the FileMaker online community is abstraction, dynamic programming, you know, adaptive programming, all those cool things. And it sounds really cool. I did it, but my I've always resisted it to some degree because sometimes you only need to iterate 12 times and it'll never change from that. They have 12 months of the year. You don't need to abstract something that's going to work on the 12 months here because there's never going to be any more. If you're going to abstract, make sure you have something that's going to require some adaptability in the future because you don't know what's coming down the line. Don't do just do it because something's done 12 times. Do it because it needs to be abstracted. It needs to be able to be agile. It needs to be able to adapt to the situation. And otherwise, it just gets so complex to program and to read later. Uh, you know, I've done a, a, adaption, you know, Maybe a handful of times over the last uh, you know five years, um, because it needed, not because I made me look cool.
2: Absolutely, and, and this is where I talk about: trying a different method. When I was building my dashboard, I went out to the web. I watched a number of what were called DevCon sessions; they're now engaged sessions, and most people were advocating to use Execute ex, SQL uh, to. Gr- gather your data for your dashboard to then create a virtual list to then present your data for your dashboard. Now, in my case, I put it together using execute SQL and it was taking around 30 seconds per data point. Um, And we had a lot of data points through the dashboard. Went back to old school you know, using native FileMaker functions, I'm not going to say that execute SQL is not a native function, but I went back to the drawing board and said, right, if I create a nighttime data warehouse so that I know that this dashboard needs to be looked at once a day, and if the data is, you know, 23 hours old, that's okay, run the dashboard from a perform script on server, create myself couple of hundred records in the background to then have the user table pointing to five different relationships to pull in different points of data and then have five filters in my user table to then come back to my data. I was able to pretty much in real time change the filtering and show the, the dashboard across Thousand employees across seven different states, across thirty different locations, all by applying standard FileMaker features rather than this hip new execute SQL. But I took the time to do it in both ways, so I knew which one was going to work best.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm speechless now after that because I I just I thought I was the only person who thought that way. So thanks for confirming the way i i feel and and about i mean i'd use execute sql as well but very sparingly and only when i feel like the advantages are there for execute sql over another method like if i have to put in 10 table occurrences to accomplish something i can do with one execute sql line well yeah then it's clear to me that i shouldn't be putting those 10 table occurrences and manage database and cluttering it up uh, when execute sql is the is the real tool. So it's it's about getting your tool belt and using the right tool for the right job.
2: Yeah, and, and making sure that you extend that tool belt every week trying to find a new function and a new way of doing things. Um, and so that you're not doing what you were doing 10 years
1: ago exactly exactly now you mentioned this is a while back about 20 minutes ago in your design process about design patterns and i know you've talked a little bit about it all throughout this podcast but can we like focus in on it and tell people what a design pattern is and what it means for interface and things like that just give us your whole spiel on on design patterns Geez,
2: I could sit here and Google design patterns and get the generic, you know, this is what we talk about, about a design pattern. But it's, it's almost like an expected behavior. If someone press, if someone sees an element that, you know, simple example, rounded corners on a button, that's a design pattern. Um, You can talk about saying that when someone sees that, they know what it means. not a real good example, but a hamburger. You know, three lines. When someone sees that, they sort of know what it is. When they see a cog or something to say that this is where your settings are. Um, there's also the three ellipses that are coming out now, sort of they're, they're graphical design patterns. If you have a read of Apple's design guidelines or Google's design um, documentation, um, I've got that open in one of my tabs here at the moment. It's, it's formulating a, an expected behavior based on what you're seeing. Um, and you have a consistent design pattern, even to the point that a button looks like a button throughout the whole system. You can have a list view that you click on the field name that it can then sort the columns, and that doesn't have to look like a button. But you make things consistent that a user can look at it and go, yep, that's that's what I understand. You know, I understand what red means in this system. I understand what that means. And so it's, it's creating that consistency, um, and it, it ends up being a design pattern. And, you, and, you, and I, I would advise most people to get out there and Google UX design patterns and, and see for themselves what's out there. Because it's not just FileMaker software, it's the world. There are different design patterns that are out there.
1: Yeah, I think uh, if you look across the United States, stop signs look almost identical. They're always an octagon. They're always red, and the stop says is in white. That's, I would assume, a design pattern so that everybody can recognize it right away instantly.
0: Well, that's also all across the world, John. I mean, the stop sign is universal. So patterns
2: like that definitely do exist yeah and yeah and, and it's not just software um an example of that is you walk into a mcdonald's anywhere in the world and you're going to get the same user experience the same pattern you know it's even down to the and the same you, you're even well I, I, that's that's something i don't understand why you travel around the other side of the world to have a burger you can have around the corner but that's that's that person's security blanket But the idea being that even when you walk into McDonald's, you know, they're going to ask you if you want fries with that. You know, that's the part of the design pattern. Uh, It sells McDonald's a a hell of a lot more fries, but it's part of the expected behavior and people have comfort in that.
1: So let's move on to focus design. Uh, It's one of the things you told us you'd like to talk about, and I'm not, I may be familiar with it once you talk about it, but I'm not as uh, as educated on stuff as you. I kind of make it up as I go along. But, uh, but tell us a little bit about focus design to, to educate our audience so they can talk intelligently about this stuff. Maybe they're doing some of it already, maybe they're not.
2: Oh, when we talk about user-focused design?
1: Yes, absolutely, yeah.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. So we're putting everything in the context of the user. Um, and the first step for me is to have a user table for for, the, for their preferences so that we know what their last layout visit was. We, as an example, have a, a solution that has a dashboard. It has um, personnel query, and it also has a my actions table. Now, as part of the user table, the user can pick which one of those three startup processes they prefer. And so I'm not going to tell them they have to go to the dashboard, then to personnel, and then to their own actions. Depending on their preference, they can pick and choose which one of those three they want to go to. Another example of user-focused design is to have a single-purpose layout to say that although I can have a layout that goes across my upper-middle management and then my, my users, separate out the design for the layout to say that I only see the things I need to see. Now, again, for simplicity of layout, you can have the one layout and hide buttons according to the user permission level, or you can make it easy for yourself and have slightly different layouts for the different users. um, So you're not having to worry about layering up buttons and hide conditions, which again comes back to this idea of separating items out to different layouts rather than trying to do everything on top of each other. Uh, and that's that's something came from my experience doing multimedia production that we had a, a developer come in and he did everything in one frame. But when he changed one thing, something else broke. And then we had the second team of developers that came in and said, no, we're gonna have separate screens or separate layouts for the different functions and we're going to separate our code out, so it's very simple and very easy to see. But the whole thing about the the user focused is to give them the best experience.
1: Yeah, that's a very important point you just made, and and we did a whole podcast on it, and it really deserved a whole week's worth of podcast. It's just keeping things simple. But that's an interesting concept I had not thought about uh, entirely. I mean, I've done it sometimes. It's but it, it, you're you're a lot of times what developers want to do is shove every all the functionality into one layout and sometimes you have to step back and say, hey, maybe we shouldn't do that, not just because it's easier for the user, but it's also easier for programming down the line because it's not so complicated. You don't have objects turning on and off and things like that, you know, and hiding objects and and so many things going on that it gets, I've done this myself. I've made a layout that's so complicated with so many things it becomes difficult to edit it later, and you've got to watch out for that. So I think that's an extremely important point.
2: So it's, yeah, it's, it's keeping it simple and not overcomplicating when you when you um, when you don't have to and you're not there to impress anyone with your with your coding. Um, it, getting the job done done and getting the process clean is is a better way. And if you start hiding things based on privileges, you almost need to have two versions of FileMaker running on your Mac so that one's logged in with one privilege and you're logged in with your developer privilege. You know the script debugger is great that we can actually authenticate in as the administrator even when we in there as a different user but it is really complicated to keep your brain focused on two separate areas to say well yes i'm hiding this button based on this user but i'm showing it for another just have the separate layouts you know it's, it's a lot easier to keep track of but the idea of having a a single purpose for a layout it can be confronting for some developers. I can't talk highly enough of, of Albert from Small Co's design masterclasses. And I spent time with Albert running one of these here at the, the local uh, amusement park. And one of the developers in the in the session was really stuck on having a multitude of buttons for every type of user on that layout. And we were struggling to get through to him and it was getting quite aggressive and, and, and quite confronting for him. And in this case, I took him out to the amusement park and I said, I want you to watch this this ride, this amusement. And it was the one where you take a huge big mallet and you hit the 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 gong and it shows you how hard I hit it. And I said, you hit it. And I said, I want to sh- you watch for the one function and one feature of this ride that makes a difference. And so the child came up and hit it and got a five and then they hit it again and got a seven and then they hit it again and got a 10. And the child went off with a with a toy and life was great. And I said, did you see the one feature of that, that particular amusement? And I pointed to the fact that there was a button around the back of the desk. And every time the child hit that gong, the attendant was able to press the button to make the gong go higher so that every child walked away with a gift. Now, when you're designing an amusement for a child, that one feature makes all the difference. And even though that it's not obvious to the person using it, that's just, that's perfect UX, you know. And we went back inside and he came came to develop and to craft some layouts that only had one function. Now, it doesn't matter if they didn't make it into his final solution. He had still been through the process of doing option B to see if it was better than option, option A.
1: Now, correct me if I'm wrong. You're not saying that you couldn't have two purposes for a particular layout, but sometimes you need to separate. It doesn't have to be one versus everything. It could be some happy medium between the two where you have, instead of one layout versus four layouts, you might have two layouts.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's simplifying it to the point where you can work with it at its best. It's, it's, it's still going to be validated to say, yes, this is the right way to do it rather than turning around and saying, well, I'm gonna do it simple, but I don't know why. It's gotta be considered. There are times, have one layout, have one field that's, that's got a high condition on it. You don't have to have a blanket rule. And, and this is the whole thing. Don't have a blanket rule on this is how I do it. Try it different ways and come up with a better option each time you're putting something together. Be, be, a, be available to experiment in your code and to try different things. And you might find the way you're doing it currently is perfect the way it is, you know. But you've at least spent the time to, to, to ensure that what you're doing is the right way. You know, it's interesting
0: you should say this because actually I've been work- I'm working on a project right now for a, an insurance uh, brokerage, and there are there's the general user, there's the administrator user, and they've got separate screens. But then there were assistants, and all the assistants had to do was just verify that a policy had been entered correctly and get additional information. And that was all they had to do. And all the salespeople had to do was see who their clients were and what commissions they've got coming in. So I gave the assistants a separate screen that only has that thing on it. They can do everything they want within that screen, but it's just dedicated to that. And the salespeople exactly the same. And so this was a different approach just based on this one thing that we're talking about. And it really does make a difference.
2: Oh, and it would have been so much easier for you to have three separate layouts with those three separate functions and three separate scripting um, folders. And the next person who comes along to that solution, they're gonna get it straight away, where if they've got to dig into a layout to understand why buttons are hidden according to privileges, and you've got huge big if and else if statements, their cognitive load of what you've written and even to yourself, if you have to go back into that solution, you know, three months later, you start scratching your head. Yeah.
0: But it's all about getting to the whole, everything we do is about getting to simplicity and the universal rule that I've concluded is true is that you can't get to simplicity without going through complexity, whether that's a mental exercise or physical exercise You've got to find a way to achieve what you want and then you figure out ways to make it better and quicker and easier.
2: Yeah, as a as someone who was a painter and, and, and worked with pencils and charcoals, we had to know when to stop. Stop adding paint, stop adding pencils, stop adding charcoal. When we're developing software, we can add everything that we like And then we need to know how much to pull away and take away to then stop to to know we've reached the right point. So it's it's slightly, you know, jarred the other way. But, yeah, everything on the screen needs to be justified. And as part of your user-focused design, write a script that logs when that person's, you know, that particular user's run that particular button. And give yourself a dashboard or some sort of reporting function that at the end of the week, well, you know, somebody in accounts asked for this button, we've put it in, and they've never run it. Now, is it because they forgot it was there, or they didn't really need it, or we haven't really explained that we've added it? They just don't see it. So start understanding how your users use your system to then be able to scale it back. And you might find you have a meeting in three months and say, that button we put on and you said we had to have it. Nobody's used it. Can we agree to remove it? Because you're not using it. And again, you're going to simplify things. I love that. (laughs) You know, it it can be a little bit big brother. You know, how do you know I I haven't pressed that button? You know, um, I had a scenario yesterday with a, a brand new staff member borrowing someone else's workstation And I rang them up and said, "Um, I'm sorry, but you're in the test system. You're not in the live system. Did you know that? No. How do you know I'm in the test system? I said, because I've got the server admin console in front of me. Oh, okay. I said, you've been in there 20 minutes. Yes, I have. Right. Okay. I need to take you through going back through the live system. Had you made any changes? Now, in my environment, the live system has a grey background through all the layouts, the test system has an orange background through every layout. And again, that's an element style through a theme. So when I take my most recent live update, move it across to test, I change one element on the layout, which is called panel, and I change it from gray to orange, and then I apply that and the whole system now has orange panels instead of grey panels and there's one system setting in the control table where I change from live to test so that if anyone runs an email notification in the test system they go through to the system administrators rather than the target uh, client or user but for troubleshooting I include the two and the cc in the body of the test emails so that at least we know who it's supposed to go to and we can still test those functions to make sure we're getting the right data through. Um, in this case, this person had only just started and now that they know Gray is live and Orange is test, we're good to go.
0: That brings reminds me of this story, Darren, you mentioned a few minutes ago about as an artist. Uh, Picasso was once asked how long it took him to paint a painting. And he said, well, it actually takes two people. And the interviewer says, what do you mean, what do you mean it takes two people? You're Picasso. You're the greatest artist ever. Picasso said, well, it takes me to paint it, and it takes somebody else to
2: say stop. Mm, there's a lot of Picasso stories running around. <laughs> yeah, I don't know whether they're true. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's the one I like to um, recall is that a man goes into a park and wants his portrait painted. and Picasso spends 10 seconds and says, right, there you go. That's $2,000. He goes, what do you mean $2,000? It only took you 10 seconds. He goes, no, it took me 50 years to learn how to do a portrait in 10 seconds.
1: Yeah. A a lot of people don't understand why developers charge a lot of money per hour. It's not, it's all that experience from our past that's gotten us to this point.
2: Absolutely. And, and, And my model is to say that, okay, let's look at, your capital expenditure for the year that you want to put into this particular app. And then we'll decide how we spend that money rather than saying, this is my hourly rate. It's about, you know, this is what, this is your budget and we'll build something within that budget.
1: And the other thing I tell them is like, you know, you're more than welcome to go hire somebody for $25 an hour, but you're probably going to end up spending more because you're going to have to redo the solution. You're actually going to spend less money because I know how to do it faster. And there, there's just all kinds of reasons why it's important to not buy, buy that, you know, somebody by the hour. Um, and I hope that people who are not developers listening to this podcast understand that, you know, it's not like you, $500 an hour is going to be the best. Um, that would probably be a little outrageous. But you know, think about how much you're paying somebody per hour, compare it to what their experience is and understand why they're at that hourly rate and how much more they can do for you uh, because they have that experience.
2: If any developers are out there listening to this, have a look at what Jonathan Stark has written and what he has talked about as a, as a next FileMaker developer, now as a, as a consultant. Um, and some of the stories he tells, his first client, they agreed on a fixed price for the project and when he then went back and calculated his hourly rate, it was three, four times what he would normally have charged. So it's 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 perceived value.
1: So I know we've talked. To, uh, you know, this is really a, a a you know a talk or a podcast about you know what what is UI, what is mostly what's UX, because people are less familiar with that term, and hopefully have gotten this out. But there's you're also a, a developer, and so we want to know some of your developer best practices. We want to go off and find out what other things you know besides about UX. So in any time it has to do with UX, please tell us. But tell us about your best practices, what things you think are important. I think you already talked about the live system versus the test system. That's probably one of them. Uh what other kinds of things do you do you uh you know make sure that that everybody follows at your business? Um the fact
2: that, as we discussed You know, the best practice is to not work on a live system, set up a test environment to be able to allow users to play because it's very difficult for a user to test a new function on a live system without touching live data, allow them the ability to go and play with things to give them feedback, Uh, prototype items, you know, as as we're going through as a best practice. Um, In working in a live to, to test environment, you do need to be able to then update the live system. And over the years, um, as part of one of the team at Goya, we had a product called Refresh FM that scripted the updates from dev to live. Now we have the the, the data management toolkit tool, uh, which is command line, but there are a number of front-end options to that, and our friends out at Productive Computing has Uh, a front end for that um, that allows you to point using FileMaker, point at a folder of clones, point at a folder of source data, and your data will end up in the live system. I have done a a slight modification to that particular file that I can handle multiple files in their their front end. Uh, I have one client who still has 46 live files in his solution. And using that FileMaker front end, it's the client's job of a Sunday to go and grab his, I think it's up around 40 gig worth of data that he's had over the last 20 years and bring that into the the clones of the development that we were doing for the week. And it's about an hour process for him. There's no way you could do that. There's There's, there's hundreds of tables. So the ability to be able to say, here is a clone of my development, here is the live data, have a scripted process to bring that in is a really good best practice. Um, I've been involved in projects that the, uh, the developer has attempted to do a custom import of that data, got it wrong, and then three hours into the live situation found out that there was data in the wrong place. Part of the process of running a live and test server is to bring all of the live data into your test environment at a regular interval to make sure that you're testing the the data update process as well, so that someone logs into the test system and says yes, that does come across correctly. You know, it's scripted, so we can run it again next time. So the idea of developing on a test system, the Idea that all development is performed on a hosted server. Um, I know some people develop on their own local drive and unfortunately your browser or some other software can take your system down and corrupt your files. You're better off running on a hosted server that there are scheduled backups of your development happening automatically as well because you may spend think you've gone down a track of development and find out, oh, hang on, I've got to go back. i got to go back to midday. Well, I can pull the midday backup up in my development files, put them back again, and off I go. Another best practice is to have zero errors. Um, and you need to have a good DDR tool to do that. Um, if you do a, a session of development, run your DDR before and after, And then if you've got errors, you know you've introduced them in that programming session. Um, And if you pick up a solution from someone else and it's full of errors, then some warning bells should go off because you don't even know what is classified as an error. That if you have a script that goes to a layout and creates a new record and for some reason that layout's been deleted but the script is still in production, how do you fix it? You know, because if you introduce that layout back to the solution, it might not be an error that it's supposed to create a record in that table based on that layout. It should stay where it currently is. So I'm a big component of zero errors in all your systems. Running a good DDR tool over your solution. Another best practice is to use stored data for any searches. I've got a solution that a particular search was taking 12 minutes. And it was explained to me from management that that one particular script was run once by one user once a month. So you start, and they didn't justify me working on that because it wasn't that big a deal. In talking to the users, I found out there was a great proportion of the main users of the system ran that script multiple times in the day and they'd press the button and go and get a cup of coffee to come back and because it was an unstored search each time somebody else ran it they were then compacting on each other's performance of the system and as part of the data warehouse that i created for the the dashboard i also created stored fields for searching on. That were being triggered when other da- related data was being updated. Those twelve-minute searches came back to twelve seconds, and the server CPU went back to under ten percent day in day out instead of maxing out. So having good data structure is another best practice as well.
1: So I want to go back to one of the ba- by the way, those are all great ideas, and and every developer is different in their best practices. But I, I want to talk about developing on a live system. And I don't know if Michael will agree with me on this. I'll give him a chance to say something. But I develop on live systems when I'm not modifying data. Let's say somebody wants a report. They call me up on the phone. New client says, I have this system. I need a report. Going on their live system and developing the report, which is not going to modify any data, not have any chance of destroying anything, seems to me... A better option for that client because it's going to cost them a lot less. There's no, ex, you know, no using the data management tool and spending time to pull it in and taking them down. And you know, it, it just seems to me like some features, some situations are good for a live system okay not I would never develop a whole system while people were using it that would never happen I develop it locally or on a test server like you say and then give it to them but inevitably they're going to want more features that they didn't think about and a lot of times I'll just develop those on a live system if they're just uh, simple features especially when they have a low likelihood of you know messing up their data your thoughts uh
2: I could be dramatic and 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 say you know, there are best practices of texting while driving to say, well, you know, I I just did it this once, you know, there was no other cars, you know, it was was a good scenario. If we put this purely in a, a user experience scenario, then the developer's making the decision on whether this change can be made to the live or the test system. And then it's open to the developer to make that decision as to which way they they follow the process. And then you're going to get some buy-in from the user to say, well, hang on, you made that change last week or yesterday to do this. Can't you just make this one for me? You know, can you just do this? And you are working without a net. Don't get a chance to really test it. Now, I understand in the context of this point that we're doing a search based on a button. But I know myself what could go wrong, and you may be targeting a, a field for a search, and you end up with an error that you actually don't go into find mode correctly, and the search requirement is actually updating the first record in the clients found set. You and a lot of these things, I know what could go wrong because I've done it. Good point. You know, whether I've done it in a live system or a test system, it's possible that it could happen. That, that, you know, you're in the middle of writing the script and you put the button on the layout. Now, to minimize interaction, you don't show the button until you finish the script and that you've run it yourself. But you also know if you're going in and out of layout mode on that layout and there is a user on that layout, they're gonna get an interrupted experience on that layout. I know that if you go in define find fields while someone is in your system, their default tab will become the active tab, regardless of what table they are in. So if someone's looking at a particular tab control or slider panel, and you define do a small change to a field, then they're going to jump to different tabs. And if your UI is consistent and you have a button in the same spot on different tabs, but it uh, performs different functions, they're not going to notice and they're going to run a different script. In doing that one change, it may not be something that you need to work through with the user to make sure it's right. For me, it's not a consistent... User experience. We then have two ways of working. One is I'll do this change live, or I'll do this change as part of the next release that we've grouped together. And I think it comes back to the idea: just because you can, you've really got to decide whether you should. The things that can go wrong on working on a live server that I've personally seen is systems being hosed because the VPN drops out once you hit OK to complete the schema. Uh, that wasn't me. I'll say that I was watching that one. But I will say that I was able to send 2,200 text messages in 12 seconds because I know that's how long it took me to jump into the server console and to kill the script, and that one was me. Luckily, the way my test environment was set up was that I was sending them to my phone, not the client's, and so my phone went nuts. But you've got to bring Murphy into this, that if it could go wrong, it probably will. And working on a test environment is your safety net.
1: Very well said.
2: And it is a best practice. And it's, 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 it, it is something that's hard to resist because it is so easy to jump into a live system and, and to make that change.
1: Yep. I, I think you made a major point very well. And I think it depends on the client, too. Um, it's going to cost more money to do it the way you're doing it. And some clients just don't have that kind of budget. And But yeah, there are definitely risks involved in just about everything you do, as you so eloquently explained. And I think it's great that we could have somebody Who's doing something a little bit differently than me? Because I'll work on a live system. I'll be very careful. I know I'm working without a net, right? Um, and I I haven't messed up yet, but it's possible. <laughs> and so you got to be careful if you're going to do it. And and if you really want to be ultimately safe, you don't run with a knife in your hand, right? You just don't do it. It's just a rule. And and so don't develop on a live system and you'll never have a problem that you'll regret. So it, it's a good point you make. And I think we got both sides. I don't, do you have anything to add to that, Michael, any thoughts? Well, I mean, obviously
0: there's a, there's an element of practicality. I mean, I try and avoid doing anything that will require me going into, into the de- managed database and stuff like that. I don't see a problem with adding a report or a, um, you know, script, Adding a new script or anything like that. Ninety-nine percent of the time, it's very simple, and you might as well just do it there and then. But if you are gonna do anything with,
2: but are they, are, sorry, are these just just to ask? Are these sites that you have a test environment running that you're going to have to make this change to both? No, so all development's done live at this site.
0: Well, no, schema changes are not done live. Schema changes are done. I take the file offline. During the nights when they're not using it, bring it down to moment to local and make changes like that, and then put it back up. So I don't make any
2: schema changes to the live database. Yeah, I think I think this is one where we're gonna to agree to disagree.
0: No, I, I mean I definitely see the you know the benefit of using a, a test environment. It's just not always practical, Darren. And you know one has to. So life is a compromise in every single way, and we've got to just have consideration for what's possible, what's practical and what's feasible. And sometimes it just is the way
2: it is. Yeah, I I just haven't had a situation over the years where um, even if we hosted the, the test solution or the test solution was running off someone's local drive to say, here are the changes I've made. This is a offline copy, whether it's running on a test server, whether it's running on someone's workstation, uh, it's here with the latest data. Uh, please ensure that what I've done is correct because I am human. I can make mistakes or I can misinterpret. Yes, those changes are correct. Right, I'll make a set of clones and then take the system offline for X number of minutes, roll the data across, and then, then I'll put those up on the server. So, so there are compromises to that process where you may not have the funds for a test server, but you can still run a copy of that system away from the live environment and run that script or run those changes to ensure what you've done is correct. And it can be a modified test environment too.
1: Yeah, I think what it comes down to, Darren, is, is the word practical. And some clients require the best practice that you're talking about and absolutely need it which would generally be larger businesses who have the budgets to do the best practices. But a lot of times there's these little mom and pop shops out there who can't even afford to have a test environment. They can barely afford to have somebody come in and add a report. And so those are the kinds of situations I think we're talking about. Yeah, kind of have to sometime make exceptions, but in a perfect world, absolutely. I would always do it your way. No questions about it, Darren. So that was a a great discussion about this thing, and not all developers agree on everything. And and uh, I appreciate your viewpoint, and uh, glad you brought it up and stood your ground. So definitely, I think our viewer, our our audience will appreciate that. And I think we're almost coming to the end of of this discussion. That's you know gone from UI and UX over to other areas of development, which obviously uh, Darren is an expert at and has great practices that you guys should all definitely consider. Is there anything you want to add that we haven't asked you about uh, UI, UX design process, anything that's come to your mind? you want to end or just sum up anything? I just uh, always want to give somebody a chance to make sure that it's not just me asking questions. you get a chance to to say what what's on your mind.
2: I think we've hit a lot of topics. there's a lot of great content here for anyone listening. There's a lot of great resources out on the Clarus community. And you'll find myself and others that are beating the design drum. And there's a number of presentations at this year's Claris Engage to talk about design. Um, they had the panel that they discussed a lot of the concepts we're talking about now. And yes, you know, my own and other presentations at the Engage um, on-demand sessions to, to, to take this. In. And for every developer out there to say, you are a designer you develop and design at the same time. Your UI and UX is just as important for your clients, regardless of their budget, and spend some of your research and development time on trying different techniques, grabbing as many demo files as you can, and, you know, challenge yourself to to keep continuing on this journey of, of design.
1: Yeah, I think there's no doubt that that every developer, even a small time developer, can apply the UX experience to their development process it's a pretty easy thing you just have to try it out every day and keep thinking about you know what's the experience with this solution and so i think that's a pretty easy one for anybody to to pull into their you know put on their tool belt and make sure that they follow because it, it's going to give a better experience uh you know you're going to get more word of mouth uh you know marketing from that than than you'll get from any kind of advertisement you ever did. People say, oh, designed the greatest solution for us. We love it. And uh, I think considering the user experience is something that sometimes developers just don't think about. So I'm glad you took the time and come and talk to us about it, Darren.
2: Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity to chat with you guys.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Eye-opening some of the things you talked about. They were great. No,
0: it's been great, Darren. Really appreciate it. Well, we've had a very interesting conversation. I'm Michael Richard and I'm signing off.
1: My name is John Mark Osborne, and thanks for commenting below if you have the time. And we'll see you next time. Take care.
0: Bye-bye now. You've been listening to Fireside FileMaker, a podcast with John Mark Osborne and Michael Richard. We'd love to hear what you think, so please email us at info at firesidefarmaker.com. That's info at firesidefarmaker.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.